You are listening to an interview with Jeff Kipnis, produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. So, yeah, so the way I have some notes, but I, I broke this into roughly two parts, which is I'd like to do a little bit of history and background about you, talk about your methodology. Your book of essays just came out, which means that you've been somewhat canonized, or at least your, your method has been sort of crystallized into something, you know, there's like the Kipnis way of doing criticism. Uh, but, um, I'm, you know, because I'm now writing a whole series, of, those are essays that I wrote. I didn't put that book together. I didn't choose them. Mm. If, you're, if you look at the book, I had nothing to do with it, which is why the book came out. It's like 1990 to 2000. Yeah, but I mean, a student of mine asked if he could do it, and I just, the deal was, I don't take a, I don't look at the list you choose, I don't go back and edit them, you know, that was the deal. Because I don't write these essays for books and stuff like that. I, I haven't opened it. Really? Not much. There was a book launch in New York, Cooper, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Or, I've been to several book launches. I signed <laughs> up. I have opened it enough to sign a whole bunch of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> However, because of it, uh, they want to do a second edition. I mean, not a second edition. They want to do a second volume. I have enough of these for three volumes. What I've decided to do is, and I've written a whole lot this summer. I've decided to do at least one more volume. Um, and mix half and half old and new writings. Mm. Um, but my thinking is so um, undisciplined, and my goal absolutely is not to produce a following. In mm. fact, mm -hmm. it's the last thing I want is a following. So I, the idea that there's such a thing as a method, you know, there's no question that I came up at a certain time and right at the height of post-structural thinking, and I particularly studied Derrida's work as much as I could, not as well, I mean, as well as I could and as much as I could, although I was totally untrained, and I, every great commentator on, that knows what they were doing, including him and my best friends that were real experts in his work, you know, just understood how bad I was <laughs> You know, so I can't blame any of my mistakes on him, but I, my thinking was formed in that. Mm. Um, there was a ludic side to his way of thinking and a sober side. I think I missed the whole sober point. Mm. I got the ludic. <laughs> you know, then I had other influences like uh, Sanford and my own training in music and physics and I am interested in biophysics. And, you know, so I came with a whole lot of sort of tactical areas of micro-expertise, no, no strategic area of expertise, and I tried to mobilize these at various points in time, but um, no well, meta, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, to cut you off. Let's ground this a little bit, though, because I, I respect that you reserve the right to switch critical methods whenever you choose, and you, you, know, you do so to your advantage. But historically, we can say that um, you came a generation after the, the big opposition's figures. Yes. So with the opposition's crowd, there was an opposition between phenomenology and structural linguistics, or the linguistic analogy at large, versus phenomenology. Language people were saying, you read a building as a text, and you use literary theory. As someone, I mean, we don't read oppositions anymore, you know, we just understand it as intellectual history. But as I understand it, there was the phenomenology camp, you know, a la Frampton, and then there was the language or linguistic camp on one side. And 
you came a generation after that when that was sort of exploded by post-structuralism, which as uh, another umbrella term encompassed post-colonial theory, queer theory, feminist theory, uh, all these isms that made phenomenology seem like it was too essential or it presumed a universal subject. And this was sort of, as I understand it, the background that was set when you sort of came onto the scene. Now, how wrong am I? Uh, <laughs> you're not wrong. What's, what difference does it make how accurate your history is? Yeah, and, you and, have a history. Some subdivisions that would be useful for you is a kind of uh, essentialist phenomenology that would belong to someone like Norbert Schultz, which is different from a tectonic poetry, which would you, which you would think of as Frampton. And it was also more political with Frampton. Much more. And so Frampton is someone, it's, e- it's very easy to do. Uh, phenomenology in the Zumthorian sense, uh, you, you think of as Heidegger. A phenomenology in the Framtonian sense is Heidegger trying to synthesize with Marx. Yeah, true. But just keep these formulas simple. True. Yeah, so one is Heidegger, one is Heidegger trying to synthesize with Marx, which was which makes which makes Frampton the most important critic for me in the 20th century. More important than Rowe, more important than Tafuri. Rowe is a formalist, Tafuri is a Marxist. They they are too narrow. Frampton's project was the biggest of them all, and failed. its failure was interpreted in one of two ways, either as he, he was on the right track and didn't pull it off, but it still could be pulled off, this is the Ackman, Mary McLeod version of it, or I interpreted it as he did it exactly right, and its failure meant it was uh, impossible to pull off, and therefore opened the door to what I do. So, the other, the other issue is the grays and the whites. I mean, in terms of the linguistic school, because it's a fundamental division, and it just go this way, rather than literary criticism and structuralism and post-racial, uh, it's just the semantic group, which is Venturi in the United States and Aldo Rossi in, in Europe, and that's simple to remember, because Europe's old, so they're interested in <laughs> memory, Mm-hmm. The United States isn't old, so it's interested in meaning. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything to remember, so we work on meaning. <laughs> uh, they have a whole lot to remember, so they work on memory. Then there's the syntactic group, which is Eisenman. And then, so that's where all that formalism comes from. The five, at least in their early. Yeah, I mean, for example, early on, the greatest of them all was Graves, who combined incredible syntactic analyses with incredibly funny and stupid uses of semantic references. But they were grounded in diagrammatic formalism and, and eventually, except for the Wexford Center, which has these little semantic jokes in it with the armory stuff, pure syntax. So it was an avant-garde, unlike the other group, because it didn't find, try to find the limits of a possibility within the language. It was trying to change the language itself. So there's simple formulas to kind of remember, but you did, the fact that you even know all that stuff is uh, it, it deeply moving to me. <laughs> I did grow up in all that stuff, and yes. Uh, I learned everything backwards. I learned exactly what you said, starting with the post-structuralist ideas, working all the way back, finally getting eventually to Corp, and kind of stopping there, but every once in a while having to deal with audio or stuff like that, because, you know, people like Pete. 
So like everybody else in the world, when you're in school, you learn stuff forward. You start at Aristotle or whatever you are, physics, you know, you start all you know. In life, you get interested in something and then you learn everything backwards. Mm -hmm. So I was not an architect or a philosopher, so I had to learn everything. I was interested in everything today and then learn everything backwards. Maybe this will help. Uh, again, I'm trying to just sort of place you within a critical field. Us for the purpose of fat. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what would you say was your first important essay, and what were you what were you writing about? What critical model were you working through? The, the first essay for me that was important was called Architecture and Change. It was where I was sort of trying to figure out just briefly. I met Peter in um, Atlanta. He seemed incredibly smart. No one could understand what he said. I tried to read some of the books. That he was reading or writing? Writing, or you know, the House 10. I read some of his essays. It all just seemed impenetrable and erudite. And I thought, wow, this guy's a genius. Yeah. It was the House of Cards book? Yeah, not quite out yet then. But I'd read those essays by him and Rosalind Krauss. All that stuff was done. A little while later, I moved to New York, and I, I was actually going to be right painting criticism for art, art in America. And uh, anyway, I went to his office, started hanging around there. All that stuff went away, and I started hanging out with him. But you know, and then and this is when I started to seriously try to read Derrida for myself. So that essay was the first time I actually tried to parse the relationship between the two of them. And I kind of got him right, and I kind of got Derrida right, and I kind of got both of them wrong. And it kind of got pointed out by everybody. And when was this? What year? Or roughly? 88, 87. Now, most people think of The Separate Turks as my most important essay. It was the essay I wrote for tenure. It's the one that has the most scholarly stuff in it. It had a whole lot of footnotes in it. I, I really enjoy it. I think it's incredible how no one quite gets it under the structure of it. I mean, I build a lot of personal stuff into my writing for my own, just so I enjoy, can enjoy and sit down and do it. You know, like I do a lot of research. I don't tell everybody about it. Like this, I've just written this thing on Michael Meredith on Moss. Well, it's basically about my new models of what uh, a, a disciplinary practice should be. So, and, I, and now I'm writing on the Mason Domino diagram. So, and I try to go from something, you know, kind of not experimental, but new ways of writing criticism to a really serious topic that I can open up in a new way. So, I don't know, Blog 31 had all these essays on the Mason Domino diagram. They seem like they're fighting with each other about what the Mason Domino diagram is. And now I'm writing about, in fact, if you, look, if you read the Moss article and you understand my new model of disciplinary practices, then the, the question is not uh, who owns the Mason Domino diagram, who owns the Mason Domino, which is how it seems like what they're fighting over, but what is the Mason Domino? And it turns out to be everybody owns it in its own way because it's formed an ecology, and there are 20 species of it, not a contest over one. So the two are linked together as a kind of comedy and tragedy of the same. Um, no, that's perfect, and it answered my question in that if, if your first sort of philosophical 
investigations were Deridian, then you were entering via the linguists. I mean, yes. nothing is outside of text or... Yes, well, remember, the, yes, I was operating from the syntactic group. See, the thing about uh, Peter was he never was a post-structuralist or a deconstructionist. He, he was always a syntactic. He liked to read it. He liked to interpret his own work through it. He, he appropriated some of their, lots of their quotes and some of their goals, but he always wanted to produce a complex but decidable text. You know Pynchon, you know Gravity's Rainbow? Mm -hmm. So at the end of reading Gravity's Rainbow, you could spend a whole lot of time interpreting it and thinking about it, and there's gonna be a whole lot of analysis, but you're gonna to get to the V2 rocket. That's the thing. If you read uh, Infinite Jest, you could spend, you're gonna spend a whole lot of time interpreting it, you're gonna read it and read it and read it, and you're not gonna to get to anything. You're just gonna keep going over and over and over and over and over. And, you know, David Wallace never did anything else like that. Mm. Everything else was fantastic, but also convergent to, so there's a whole lot of difference between a complex, difficult whole injury and a digressive, truly undecidable text. And Peter has never been interested in one of those. So would you think of him more as allied with um, a more conventional or a, an earlier version of structuralism? Yeah, late structuralism. Him to myth versus Schoenberg, or uh, I don't know how good your music. It's not, the funny thing is, in, the funny thing is in painting or in art, it didn't really happen that way. So, you know, there's not, there's not a kind of super layered objectivism that countered non-objectivism. It became figure versus non-objective. Non I mean, it had a lot of complexities and lots of layers, but they're not till the 80s, I think, you know, when David Sally starts to introduce a totally new way of layering collage and stuff, and then you get... Polka. Yeah, that, that whole group, and then someone like you know, Fabian Marcaccio. And, I mean, you start to see this as a possibility, but it's, it's now a second tendency, and so it doesn't even belong to something. Who did you want to write about that you were thinking of becoming an art critic initially? Like, what? There must have been something that you well, were mostly, excited about. I mean, I, I had a gallery in Atlanta for a little while. Never sold anything, but I showed very early on to never, never sell anything, but I showed Gallup and Schnabel and Sally and so the new. I mean, you were you had some affiliation with the neo expressionist movement. Yeah, but I I didn't know it. I mean, I was thinking of these as I didn't know enough about painting to know that uh, I had my own. I had different theories. Like I thought the the whole idea of a new ontology, which I've been still talking about, was born in a bit in a from a Sally painting I had in my gallery, which mm. is. You know, based on the Picabia drawings on top of the Sally, so you think you're looking at a diptych, but it's actually a black and white with two color layers, then there's a drawing on top of it. So there's four different ontologies, two, a minimalism of a diptych of color, a black and white lady and guy in bed, and then these two cartoons. I mean, for me, it was just nothing like that in the history of painting, even though everything belonged in its own way to the history of painting. So no uh, sui generis invention, but a kind of combination, a comment that nothing I'd ever seen like that. And I was seeing the same thing a little bit in Schnabel. Mm -hmm. And Sally's interesting because, I guess, 
you know, my amateur art historical uh, like typology. He was affiliated with the neo-expressionists, but also crossed over with the pictures generation a bit. Yeah, via absolutely. Yeah, that, that's why I thought he was far more interesting than Schnabel. Schnabel was definitely now, in retrospect, a, a new expressionist and right. uh, took it to an incredible level. And like you know, I wouldn't. Have, they were just friends, which is why they got paired together. And they, but they don't really belong together. I mean, you, it'd be easier to put him with uh, you know, the German guy with sunflower seeds. Kiefer. Kiefer. I don't know. Uh, I still think. I love Schnabel. I don't know. It, you know, everybody hates these. And I love those paintings. They're just yeah. they're so weird. Some of them are so awful. Yeah. I mean, he can hit lows lower than anybody, which I don't like. I like that's an achievement. You know? I look. For but it. the plates were. I mean, the, the, oh my God, those the antlers and plates. I had a little antler. Uh, I was selling everything I owned to keep the painter rent. I mean, I, I had a piano. I played a piano and had a really expensive and nice piano that I had for most of my life and I sold it to pay one month's rent stayed open 20 months and went bankrupt moved to New York that's how I moved to New York met Peter there that's so thought maybe architecture would come to the gallery and buy some paintings little did I know <laughs> so, so poor <laughs> did you can your interest in painting did that continue when you moved to New York yeah I'm thinking of the other 80s painters oh yeah I mean, Peter Howley I, the Neo Geo thing, conceptual painting. Oh well, I mean, Jonathan Lasker. Jonathan Lasker, you you must know is that group. I mean, I you don't know about the real Laskerites. Before I did these studios, um, I did a whole set of studios called Real Laskerites, where all the work was based on Jonathan Lasker's paintings. And yeah, there's some of the most beautiful work I've ever produced in some of my like in Chicago. And, yeah, so Fabio Marcasio, David Reed, Jonathan Lasker. Uh, Where were you doing that, those studios? Here, UIC. Cool. Uh, then I had a reaction against that, and that's when we produced the, uh, also Sean Scully. I was promiscuous. I mean, I, I was more interested, I mean, this idea, for example, that there's a context, con, I mean, a conflict between Lasker and Terry Winters is idiotic. It's a construction of the New York gallery system and critic system uh -huh. that there needs to be a tension between Terry Winters' painting, painting which is a phenomenology and kind of sortship of painting, and Lasker, which is a conceptual, the legacy of conceptual painting. Sure. It's just total nonsense. Terry Winters is a really fine painter. Great. You know, and he's advancing one genre of painting that has nothing to do with Jonathan Lasker. Mm -hmm. It's like saying, you know, which is your favorite, dogs or worms? <laughs> you know, it's not even dogs or cats. They just, there's no point in comparing them. Mm -hmm. they, they I agree. There's nothing to do with each other. I was late coming, becoming interested in, but now I'm a, you know, passionate enthusiast for Jeff Koons. It takes me a long time. I'm late on everybody and I like being late on everybody. That's what Michael Fried always says too. But he's super <laughs> late on everybody. <laughs> like for example, I cannot abide the paintings of the South African superstar Julie Mary. Mary too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, Julie Mary too. But I'm sure architects seem to love her, you know. I'm sure in fifteen that's years like an easy line. it'll hit me. But I mean, I just, I look at this thing, I mean, why is she so famous, you know? Yeah, Cecily Brown, long, long time, no, 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 finally, after the Joni Mitchell, the Joni Mitchell show, 
Joe Mitchell said, did you see it? The waitress did that. I mean, totally eye-opening. This is like a bit like uh, someone like Bunshaft. You know, you get schooled that Bunshaft is a kind of mannerist misunderstanding of Mises Corp. It did, I don't know how it happens, but one of the issues is, that's not right. He had his own thing, and it was incredibly interesting. So John Mitchell was a kind of, uh, wouldn't let go of figure and perspective misunderstanding of abstract expressionist right. woman wannabe. I go this retrospect, totally hits me what she's doing. Not one critic comments on it, none of the catalog essays. I think there, the, the possibility of a total revision of her status in the world. You know, by then I'm not writing much about art. I don't have the energy to do it, but, you know, came, I got it. Like, these are fantastic paintings. I'm the only one who doesn't think uh, Jackson Pollock is a great painter. He has some great paintings. But for there to be 15 great paintings or 20 great paintings and 3,000 paintings, mm -hmm. because he was just, you could tell who he had lunch with that day. He was one of the weakest characters in the history of painting. He just didn't have any integrity. And his paintings reek with lack of integrity. I have lots of ideas, but if you don't want to get me off on anger, you'll get nothing. No, no, this is great. This actually helps me as I'm trying to sort of piece together some. Well, I keep wondering what the hell you would do architecture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you have a wonderful touch. I mean, I've seen it as graphic, but... Well, I mean, okay, so here's how this helps me as I'm trying to sort of piece together this, this portrait of your background. Because I believe in the, the Eisenman and Co. response article, or a series of articles, you said something to the effect of, you know, evaluative criticism in architecture can only be, you can only proceed by thinking about what paintings do, what they look like, and what they mean. Or paintings, what architecture looks like, what it means, what it does. And it seems in my mind that you're... Okay, when did I say that? Did I say that really? I think it was in the Eisenman and Co. thing. It's like what it means, what it does, what it looks like. Oh, that's good. And, <laughs> but, you said that, and then I thought, well, Jeff's only interested in what it means and what it looks like. Maybe he's not interested. But now I'm interested in what it does. What it does is an interesting problem, because I knew, I said that because it had to be there, but I didn't know what, what it does mean. Now I kind of have an idea what it does. Hmm. Because I'm in this magic thing, you know. But you came into it thinking, what does it look like? And then what does it mean? And I think the... No, I came into it, what does it look like? Just quickly, I came into it, what does it look like? Because I always think what look, something looks like is important, but I didn't know why. Then I watched nature shows, and I watched those birds do those dances. Uh -huh. And I realized everybody thinks the genotype is important, it's the phenotype. In other words, for a woman bird to watch a male bird present for six hours, one after another, after another, after another, and pick one, as the thing that gets the genes to the next generation, it's picking them on the way it looks. So by the time we're making decisions, we're making decisions on phenotypical characters, not genotypical characters. Right. So I trust it. That's why we trust sound bites. Mm -hmm. So I trust that deeply. And I, it's not that I'm against all the other stuff, deep meanings, genotypical. I mean, I'm not against depth. I'm against the trivialization of surface, I'm, and they, you know, that's it. So I'm, I'm sort of an equal opportunity guy. This is the self-serving part of this, is that, you know, my thesis will have something to do with surface, skin, a kind of 
phenomenology of architecture as surface. The, the image I've been using in my mind to describe my approach is take a building and extract a kind of cicada shell of the interior and exterior. It's just so many pictorial planes, and that's how I'm interested in reading architecture. You know the Sumato problem in Leonardo? You know how I know so much more than you guys? You took my class, you don't know the answer to this. It's so easy. He does this. He, he, he throws these questions <laughs> as you to like disarm you. It's this yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. rhetorical device, and then you're like, oh, I'm such a I'm 40 years old. That was, <laughs> that's why. This is simply bad. And I've watched a whole lot of TV, and for a long time, it just, the TV. I have, some people have photogenic memory, and some people have all kinds of auto, I have TV memory. Anyway, there's a fantastic Nova uh-huh. on investigating Leonardo. What the, the, how he did his fumato, there's not a whole lot of lost secrets, but one of the lost secrets in Leonardo is how he got his fumato so perfect. And uh, there's three or four paintings. The, the Mona Lisa is one. Mm-hmm. You know, the two Mona Lisa problems. Yeah, there are now two Mona Lisa's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, the, the fact that got me is by the time they're looking at, they look, they use radio, all sorts of, every kind of scientific sure. thing. And uh, Vasari wrote about the Mona Lisa, and his description is nothing at all like the one in the Louvre. They now are pretty sure it's the other way. Oh, no. And the other one is actually more perfect than the, so this question is really interesting. But both of these have the, uh, the interesting case of the Sumata. 30 layers of translucent painting can you imagine that? 30 layers, each layer totally different fabricated paint, especially fabricated brushes. It's amazing. I just think it's, it's fantastic. All because of, there's a veil on it. Wow. You know the birth right, veil? Right. It's fantastic stuff. Anyway, next question. So you're teaching this class. I think you, or you alluded to maybe you wanted to teach a class on making renderings that don't suck or something to that effect. Is that because Alejandro's not interested in representation? Alejandro, no. Alejandro was his first, yeah, this is a barista, funny story. Uh, Alejandro said, I said, can I teach this class? You know, I thought, I'm gonna teach stuff, so I gotta teach something new, and I wanna keep teaching what I taught for Stan. Well, we did a little bit of drawing in your seminar, which, um, they were great. Having trouble, thank you. I was having trouble trying to explain to Emmy what the seminar was, but it seemed that it was loosely organized around the history of formal analysis in architecture. Well, the idea of how to go about it and... Yeah, learn analysis, which for a long time only meant formal analysis. Realize that formal analysis is incompetent to most of the interesting problems today in architecture that mm-hmm. should be tractable to analysis. And try to get to new ways to think about analyses that are not based on formal analysis. We never got that far. I mean, I know how to do it in text, but I know that that can't be the best way for every kind. Yeah, for example, I know Jimenez Lie, graphic novels, movies, films, art, you know, there's got, for every new species of architectural performance, there will be a kind of analysis, I believe. You know, so it wouldn't do any good to show pictures of those birds. You have to show the dance, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And actually, I think, it wouldn't even do, do any good to show the dance. You'd have to show the dance, if it's a male dance only, you'd have to show the dance with the female looking at it. Mm-hmm. You know, so all of the, everyone else still would be wrong, 
the point of view that showed the bird dancing from a ubiquitous or generic sub, uh, viewing subject would be wrong. I'm pretty sure I couldn't even figure out, you know, maybe the smell matters. I mean, you know, just all of these things, if you're really gonna get to the analytic content of the new performance, then received traditions of analysis aren't gonna work. You know, it's gonna be a point of view problem or something like that. I'm nostalgic for, I guess, you know, the, the elephant in the room is Eisenmannian formal analysis, right. which is graphic, not textual. It's not nostalgic, it's one of the greatest, like saying I'm nostalgic for physics, for Newtonian physics. You know, and I'll, you know, it's a great thing to do, keep around, it's a species. I'm not saying, this idea that something's over with is about the dumbest thing in the arts I've ever heard of. Well, it does seem to me that, okay, so Eisenman published 10 canonical buildings a few years ago, maybe, maybe even 10 now, I don't know. But that seemed like some sort of coronation or, you know, at least a codification of the system. He said that he wrote the book for students to have on their desks. It's not Taranye. It's, it's but Tenko. But it's okay. didn't get to I mean, the last three buildings. Uh, it breaks down with Gary is what everyone's criticism is. Well, no, I think it only works for three of the projects. I mean, for me, it's extremely interesting. It breaks down with Gary because everything he says about the Gary project is correct. The drawings are tractable if you want to work your way through them. But it's very clear that it gives you no insight into the architectural effects in any way. Same thing with the Zhushu Library. Totally misses, just totally misses, just misses the, the, the uh, National Gallery, you know, so it's it nails, I think, Danny's building. You know, the Enfilad issue, I mean, the, it just, so some places it works extremely well where you wouldn't expect it to work. In some places it doesn't work at all. Well, yeah, I mean, here's the, my point at least is, I think Eisenmannian formal analysis, which comes out of Wolfland, Wickower, Rowe, sort of Greenberg, though there wasn't the same visual diagrammatic thing, there's, you can make an analogy between linguistic analysis. Eisenman's graphic formal analysis is not like diagramming a sentence. And it seems that you came in at a moment... Okay, so I opened up your, your book of essays. The preface is written by this student of yours. The word affect was used maybe eight times in his two-and-a-half-page introduction. I thought, oh, is Kipnis the affect? Did he really? <laughs> I am often thought of as... There's a couple of things I'm associated with bringing into the discourse. Affect is one of them. Um, when you hear it, and it's not a test, but what do you think of it as meaning? Well, this is part of the reason I wanted to do this interview. And I was going to ask you explicitly, tell me about the affect narrative in late 20th century architecture and architectural criticism. When did it come in? What does it mean? Who is it associated with? How is it misappropriated? And okay. Versus... And I'm just going to tell you all this stuff now. And capsule answer, but just when you hear it, what do you think it means? What do I think it means, or what do I associate it with? Yeah, when you hear an architecture of affect, what do you think of it as meaning? I associate it with. I, I, you know, Don't worry about it. I'm just, okay, so here's, here's what I think. I think um, special effects, um, meaning not FX, effects, mm -hmm. like interesting materials, lighting conditions non-orthogonal um, references to organic forms and I think of a physiological experience of architecture versus a, an analytic 
you know, which would fit in with a textual okay, sort of model. Good. Precognitive. My, some of the experiences of the building would be would attempt to you know short circuit my analytical analyses and go to some sort of precognitive experience. Okay, oh that's good. Um, it, it mixes a little bit of theatrical, which you know Bernini is the father of special effects in architecture. Um, there was a tendency when digital stuff started to come in, uh, and people really were getting tired of close reading, intellectualized architecture. Um, I did mood, atmosphere, all of those things were being discussed. I was looking for a way to continue for the, a kind of intellectual project and think through why it was unable to, why there had to be an opposition and that sort of stuff. And I had, and it happened at a time when there was this gigantic uh, conference in psychoanalysis on affect. And anyway, so I started reading it and looking into it. People were, other people had used, Peter actually used the term before me, uh, because just any term you can look up, he uses. And I discovered two things that I thought were interesting. One was uh, Freud, when he, in his early essays, said there were two parts to uh, a dream. One was its meaning, and the other one was its affect. And so both of those were structured interpretations of the core wish. So it was not an emotion, it was, it's in the instinct and its vicissitudes, I say. So in other words, it's not a pure emotion, it's not an emotion, it's not a precognitive thing. Uh, if I pull a gun out, you can either be afraid or laugh, depending on the context. In other words, you can have all kinds of affective responses because they're, they're structured. You know, the scene in Tarantino in uh, Reservoir Dogs or something, or whatever one where he shoots the guy in the ax in the back seat. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs. Which I was with my grandmother, and I'm laughing. And she just was so appalled and shocked, not only at the scene, but at my laughing, that just, you know, just, we had to get out of there. She just, just, it horrified her. The two things, that the audience was laughing, just exact same thing, you know, we grew up together, all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and it happened all the time, I, you know, I grew up, we listened to the same music, she taught me music, I played Hendrix, she said, that's not music. She didn't say that's bad music. She literally just said, that's not music. So, and Freud analyzes that as, and in dreams, sometimes you can have a very happy dream, some, you know, symbolically, like the, the images in your head can be very happy and you can fear, feel fear. And so he starts to analyze this as two different kinds of interpretations. One is a meaning, which, which the uh, form, which the, linguistic school had focused so heavily on. And the other one was what he called the affect. And he didn't get very far with it, uh, and it didn't, he used it a lot, but psychoanalysis was never very satisfied with that, uh, because it got crossed over into emotion. You know, it was definitely going to be something about the ability of texts, structured texts, to produce uh, emotional and visceral seemingly precognitive work that was entirely structured and still belonged to a post-cognitive environment and would be less 
universal or could affect different audiences differently in the same textual environment. Uh, so I got really interested in it. That's interesting that you say that affect or the production of an affective experience is structured, which maybe is what would separate it from more touchy feely late phenom- architectural phenomenology. Totally, that sort of went, went sour. Well, I mean, because I, I for example, I'm, I am interested in phenomenology. I don't think there's such a thing. I don't think there is such a thing as the as a phenomenology. Merleau-Ponty is much closer than anyone, Heidegger or anyone, but the body is a structuring machine. In fact, there is no such thing as the body. So there is such a thing as a phenomenology. It's just not the religion that people would like. There is no essential religion of it. There is no pre-structured, pre-cognitive condition. Nevertheless, there's pre-memory, pre-knowledge, Structuring that allows language, memory, and acquisition to occur. But it's no less structured, no less analyzed. It's not what Stephen Hall and everybody else wants it to be. It doesn't matter. Uh, you can still work on it that way. You, know, you don't have to get anything right. Surah wanted to do, work, do his paintings based on a, t- on a scientific understanding of vision. He read the current theories of his day, tried his very best to use them. He totally misunderstood them, and they were totally wrong. <laughs> now, great theorists would like his total misunderstanding of their being totally wrong to mean he accidented upon their being right. The right answer. Yeah, the fact it is, it, it's just so far away from anything that came close to anything like a science. They're great paintings. You know, what difference does it make how? Seriously. It just doesn't matter. You know? so, and that thing became important to me. I mean, I wrote an essay finally called Toward a New Organization, which I just said, none of this matters. No philosophy can matter. No science can matter. Architecture has to take responsibility for its own effects. It's magic. Uh-huh. And I don't mean it's mysticism. I don't mean it's calling gods with, with mysterious chants. I mean, it's using strings. Yeah to produce effects that still work after 3,000 years. You know, and I'll show you a magic trick in a minute. So that's what affect is. And now, then I came across this sentence in Deleuze, uh, where he's talking about bacon. He's wrong about bacon, but he's right about this, where he just simply talks about the fact that there's such a thing as affect without emotion. And I thought, wow, that is just, you know, he's such a great writer. He just makes stuff up. He just says stuff. Just, you know, everyone, everything he writes is like a letter to a friend. He leaves stuff out, like he's telling the history of art. He decides to leave out collage. Just never mentions it. Just because they don't like it. This is another great, great way to sever the affective, interpretive mode from the phenomenological, and again, I mean architectural phenomenology, in right. that... There's always emotion in that kind of criticism. Yeah, always, always, always. And this is why, when you said, at what point did it get misinterpreted? I said, from the minute I, I, it's the one word, I don't regret it, but it has never, ever, ever had a moment in its life that I meant it to have. Not one, and never will. My students, okay. Yeah. It just meant I was wrong. 
I've told you before, if you say something, if you're interested in something, you look it up, nobody's interested in it, no one else is doing it, it's not good. It's like a real bad idea. Don't do it. You know, it's just, uh, Bernard Schumann, in fact, my review of Bernard's, this is uh, retrospective, calls him the greatest theorist, theoretical architect of the century, and points out that that's why his architecture is no good. That's why he actually did turn ideas into architecture. He did everything he said, he matches the point, and that's why his architecture isn't as good as all the other theoretical architects who don't match that formula. Yeah. He, they become inert. So he, for the, to be the greatest theorist of the event, and not to be able to produce an event because he's in such tight control of the idea is this. You know? yeah. So affect is doing just fine without me. <laughs> never needed it. You know, never needed to be a theory. I thought I was completing the post-structuralist linguistic theory of architecture, which had worked out the problem of the sign and needed to finish the problem of the affect, and it just didn't need. And this is important too, again, trying to place you within the, the intellectual field of architecture and the academy at large, is that at some point Deleuze came into the architectural conversation in a very big way. Yeah, And I, I would not, you know, pin him as a, a philosopher Probably of mine. Absolutely. In fact, he has a, you got to remember, see, I just, I, I'm sufficiently dumb and sufficiently undisciplined and short attention span that I just changed. You know, I, I got tired of hanging around Catherine and Mark Wigley and all those, you know, the Viridian group. And, and then the ethical turn in Derrida too. I mean, he turned away from those yeah. you know, sort of deep formal problems. And the... Uh, the politics. I love the guy. He was an incredible guy. He, of all these people that I've ever read, the only one smarter, deeper, better, was Foucault. I mean, I never met him, but he's, I think he's the most interesting. Those three guys are the most interesting of them all. Foucault is probably, you know, when he said in the future, we'll probably look back at this time as Deleuzean, they were good friends. Mm -hmm. But he meant that as, an, as a slap in the face of the idiots of these types. And Deleuze knew it and they laughed at it all. He meant that as the biggest insult he possibly could to these idiots of the 20th century that have fallen victim to that stupid writing. That's exactly what he meant. Deleuze knew it. Now it's on the back of every book as a, as a kind of, oh, you should read this because it's the best. Anyway, Deleuze, uh, you know, he was a great, you know, he was a speculator. He just thought about stuff, told you, you know, did whatever he wanted. But at one point he talks about the possibility that affect had to be thought as not free of emotion. And that's true. It's an excitation. It's a thing that doesn't come with um, uh, there are nine universal emotions. We, we kind of know this from science, but right. affect is just simply a structured excitation that find, wants to find out where it's going to go. You know, and so when Bernard says red is not a color, people are always, he nailed it. Mm -hmm. Red is not a color. Red is an affect. You know, uh, later on you find out, is it blood? Is it meaning? Is it, you know, does it give you epilepsy? I mean, that guy's super smart. And that's why his stuff is so dry. Architecturally dry. Yeah, I mean, his writing is drawing. I mean, yeah, but when you go to his buildings, they're just deaf. You know, that may, that may make him a great architect. I really don't know. But for me, it 
No, uh, but the theories and stuff, you know, it's pretty incredible. Hmm. But red is not a color is a pretty neat thing to say, that, you know. So, you know, the other stuff, I, like some of the other stuff, I, I had this concept called hyperindexicality, which is when indexical behavior moves from close reading, which is as an Eisenman, to producing not affect, but certain kinds of certain kinds of mesmerizing euphorias, like School of Fish, you know, we remember School of Fish and all that swarms and all that sort of stuff. I'm sort of more proud of that, I think, as I, I, I show up on reviews all the time and have all these students teach me about School of Fish and all that sort of stuff. And each, each one of those things is precise indexical calculation of impinging forces, but the total effect cannot be derived from that calculation. So it's a relationship between, you know, so. It's an emergent property, you mean the emergent property. Exactly, except I hate that term, <laughs> emergence. Which is also a term that uh, entered into architectural discourse when this you was were sort of all of this becoming the right at when uh, chaos theory and catastrophe. Yeah, Sanford is really the, you know, Sanford. Do you know Sanford or not? No. If I could caricature him, I would say he's the guy who is appropriating physiological and scientific models more than any other architectural. But I mean, for me and my generation, he was, he came to this conference that I organized in Chicago. It was a conference primarily about Derridians, but he came as the sole spokesperson for Deleuze. He, he, there was a speech he gave, a great speech. He listened for two days and uh, he attacked everybody for wasting their time on Derrida. It was really a blistering attack and talking about why people should be reading Deleuze. And I was just about to give it to him. But right before I spoke, Mark Wigley gave it to me. And I couldn't be on Mark Wigley's side because he was my best friend and therefore my arch enemy in that room. In those days, you, you did good work to beat your best friend enemies. And Mark Wigley, the idea of an architectural effect an irreducible, irreproducible architectural effect, which I am part of introducing, came directly from my reading Mark Wigley's White Walls, which I thought was such a good book that I had to figure out some theory to defeat it. And since everything in that book was about interpreting architectural effects as a form of some other effect, Marx's effect, a psychoanalytic effect, a historical effect, I thought I needed a theory of effects you could say something like, well, why are there no architectural effects that, let's say, psychoanalysis? You know, anyway, so it's just silly stuff. Long, childish, childish stuff. Mark gives it to him. But takes, does it takes long enough that I can say, oh, shit, I got enough time here while he was yelling at Sanford to figure out a defense for Sanford. <laughs> and, and, and by association, the defense of Deleuze. Yeah, and at that point, I switched to Deleuze. That's really the truth. That's what I just said, fuck it, I'm going to go read this shit. I would never have. I mean, I probably would have, I was quitting that group by then anyway. I just, I couldn't hang around reading that stuff anymore. I was just got too much, I was much too interested in projects than I was in reading. I just, I like to read, but I, yeah, I was, wanted to be an art critic. I didn't really want to be a, a text interpreter. Yeah. Plus that was me. I was missing it left and right, and everybody was pointing it out anyway, so. No, it's an interesting thing. Maybe once that generation, Wigley, uh, Colomina, 
they were sort of the first generation who saw theory as an autonomous, self-enclosed project. In it, which means that the first love is not necessarily architecture. Now, they, I, it took me a long time again. Uh, they convinced me, I think the world, that if you're a business architect, and it's, it took me a long time just to get the courage to say that. I used to say profession and service, but if you're just in it for the business, which is a good thing to be, fine. Then the apotheosis of your work is the building in its first generation. You know, doesn't leak, doesn't fall down, satisfies the client. Those, and it's like a dentist. You know, you don't want to. You know, you don't want. You don't give a shit about it after it's a skull, and you know, like you want it to be just right, right size, right color. So there is such a good thing as a business architect. Thank God, and they have to measure their results on the building. But if you're a disciplinary architect, then that's not true. You're, the building is not the apotheosis, but also the text isn't the apotheosis. No particular single element of a project, not any drawing, not any text, not a building, they're all part of the project. They all evolve over time. That constitutes a different uh, manifold. There is a manifold that is the work, but texts are uh, indissoluble from it. The writings, you know. It is no question, for example, that Cool House and Deadlift Mertens, because of Cool House and because of Deadlift Mertens, Mies is totally different. We understand him totally different, and his buildings are totally different. You know, it's got nothing to do with Nice, just like he's changed. Uh, if you go to the National Gallery, it's not the same. In fact, I, I have a, my model for building this a real building is that it's a theme and variations. And so, building you know a theme and variation in music. So there is it's built, and then you know the wall gets built, and then you get a variation. And all comes down, you get a variation, and the Sony Center goes up, and you get a variation, and the addition gets done, you get a variation. So it's, it is a one thing kind of thing, but it's not. You can't speak of the National Gallery as if it's ever. It's a mm -hmm. whole set of themes and variations, and it goes. And the nice thing about it is it goes on forever. So you know, it's uh, you have to. You need different models. So. You've been listening to an interview with Jeff Kipnis. The interviewer was Hans Tursak. The interview took place at Ohio State University in August 2014. The producer was Hans Tursak. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.